Our scripture reading is from Acts 6 through 12. This is found on page 925. I'm sorry, it's Acts 16, verses 6 through 12. This is found on page 925 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take one home as a gift from us. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brandy. Well, as we uh, begin our time here, uh, looking into this passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 16, uh, I want to pause and just pray uh, and ask that God would be uh, at work as we are listening to His Word taught and proclaimed. We believe here at Christ Community that God uh, is the author of Scripture, that he, the Holy Spirit has inspired uh, the authors who wrote the very words that uh, He intended for them to write and are recorded and preserved for us in the Scriptures. And so now as we turn to those words and look at them, I want to ask the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives through these words today. So Father in heaven, we pray um, that as you have spoken long ago through prophets and apostles um, by your Holy Spirit, that you would speak now to us uh, through those very words again afresh, applying it to our lives, to the unique needs that each one of us brings here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I'm sure, uh, like many of you this week, uh, I was following uh, closely the story of this incredible rescue from this uh, flooded cave in Thailand of these boys and their coach. And I actually first became aware of this story uh, the week of 4th of July. Um, actually, in, in the timing that we became aware it was good because we had visited Wind Cave National Park over 4th of July, and we found out about the story right after, the day after we had toured the cave. And it's key because I don't know if Rachel would have gone into the cave uh, on the tour uh, with me if we'd have known about this, this story ahead of time. But as we watched this story unfold over the last couple of weeks and then come to this amazing culmination here at this beginning of this week, uh, again and again, this rescue of these boys from this cave has been described as miraculous. This incredible rescue against all odds. And it captivated the intention of the entire world. And, and stories like this, ones of, of life and death rescue, they strike a deep chord in us as human beings. There's a reason that stories like this can capture the attention of the world. Because this idea of someone giving their life, risking their life to, to rescue another, there's something deep within us that resonates with that. In fact, I was thinking about this this week, and 
One of my earliest memories as a child is actually of the story of, and it, you know, I'm, I'm 36 now, so maybe some of you remember the story if you're older than that or that, about that age, of baby Jessica who was trapped in the well in Midland, Texas. Uh, she had fallen down a well shaft. I still remember watching the news reports. That made such an impression on me, even as a, I was five years old when that happened. And the things you remember from when you were a kid, I remember watching the reports of the story and the, 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 the attempts to rescue her, and I remember pretending like I was helping. I'd found a, a spatula in the kitchen. It was my little shovel, and I was pretending I was rescuing this, this girl from this drain, you know? And, and this, the thing is that stories of rescue, they have the ability to just, there's something about them that capture us at a, at a deep heart level. And which is why when, when explained clearly, the message of the Bible becomes so compelling. Because this, this message of the scriptures is the story of Jesus' rescue. The story of the Bible is a story of rescue, of salvation. That's what, when Christians talk about salvation, that's what they mean. If they're talking about Jesus' rescue, of God bringing glory to himself through rescuing a people in a self-sacrificial way, and not just from physical harm or, or physical oppression, but from sin and death itself. And this is what Christians have claimed. It's what they've proclaimed from the very beginning. But I want to ask the question this morning, what does it look like when Jesus actually rescue someone here and now? What is that? We, we talk about that as a kind of a concept, but what does that actually look like in someone's life? What happens in someone's life when Jesus brings his rescue to them? What does Jesus' salvation look like in the life of an ordinary person? What does Jesus do? And what we're going to see here in Acts chapter 16 as we continue on through the chapter is that Jesus saves all kinds of people. Jesus rescues all kinds of people. And what we're going to see is that that rescue, we're going to see it unfold in the lives of three incredibly different people. See, Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts that we've been studying now this year, every time, and he's very intentional about this, whenever the gospel message, the, the church, as it grows and expands into new geographical regions, he takes and he pauses and he highlights the story of a few representative individuals, a few key people who display what it looks like when Jesus' rescue comes to their lives. And he uses their stories to show us what this looks like. And this morning, as we continue in Luke 16, he's going to show us the story of a businesswoman. He's going to show us the story of an exploited child. And he's also going to show us the story of a corrections officer and how the gospel comes, how Jesus comes and transforms each one of their lives. And the first person that Luke introduces us to is this businesswoman named Lydia. And she's a, Lydia, a leading businesswoman, this key social leader and business leader in the Roman city, this Roman colony of Philippi. And she's going to become a pivotal figure in the Jesus movement. But before we look at her story, beginning in verse 13, we actually need to pause here for a moment 
and sort of locate ourselves within the broader story of Acts and also locate ourselves on on the map. Because last week, Pastor Henry walked us through Acts chapter 15, where Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas and other early church leaders, they had come together to address the question of what is truly necessary for Jesus to rescue someone? What's truly necessary for Jesus to save someone? Because a question had come up, Jesus was Jewish. He came out of the Jewish movement. Do you have to become culturally Jewish in order to be a Christian, in order to be a follower of Jesus, in order to be rescued by him? And the answer that the church gives in Jerusalem in Acts 15 is a definitive no. You do not have to become culturally Jewish in order to be a Christian. The only thing that is required for rescue by Jesus is faith in him. So did the Gentiles, do the, these non-Jews, do they have to become culturally Jewish? No. This is what happens in Acts 15. So Paul and Barnabas then travel from Jerusalem carrying that message to the city of Antioch. Now, if you were with us earlier, you may remember Acts chapter 11, Antioch is the first major city where there is a group of both Jewish and Gentile Christians worshiping together. And this is so unique, in fact, that people looking at this Jesus movement in Antioch from the outside actually have to come up with new vocabulary to talk about what's happening there, because they can't just call them Jews, even though it's kind of this Jewish movement, and they can't just call them Gentiles because it's them, they're there together doing these things. They actually come up with new language, the language of Christian. This is the first place that Christian is used in the scriptures, is in Antioch to describe, and it's actually not a, a name that the Christians give themselves. It's the people looking at it from the outside saying, what do we call this unique, strange group of people who are crossing these social, ethnic lines, gathering together? And so it's from Antioch then that Paul and uh, another early church leader named Silas begin their second journey of traveling through the Roman Empire, bringing this new message of Jesus to the world, Jesus' rescue. And what's fascinating about this section, and, and you heard it uh, when, when Brandy read, is that through the Holy Spirit, um, he's directing their mission. And you said, well, I don't know if I heard that. Well, do, do you remember those sections that, that Brandy read? And it said they tried to go into this region of the Roman Empire called Asia, and, and they were prohibited. And then they wanted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them. Isn't that fascinating? And, and, and our curiosity, Luke doesn't satisfy it. He just leaves us hanging. He doesn't tell us why Jesus directs them in a different direction. He doesn't tell them how he did that. Um, but why does he then include that? And I think it's to show that who's really in charge of this mission? Who's really leading these efforts? It's not Paul and Silas. They're not the ones deciding where to go. They're not the ones setting the agenda. Jesus is the one directing this mission. He's the one directing them where they should go. Because there are multiple places where Luke reports that Paul and Silas, they're prevented from going into this particular area. And we see Jesus' leadership again when they arrive in the city of Troas. And Paul has this vision in the night, this dream of this person from the region of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Look at verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, and no, he says, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
Now, and even on the slide, I put the capitals, or the, the word we in bold and capitals there because this is a really key transition moment in the book of Acts. Up until this point in Acts, Luke has been putting together his, his account of this early church movement by talking with others and getting eyewitness accounts and then putting this together. But now he says, we. Luke's sort of caught up with the history. Now he's actually on this journey with Paul and Silas. He's writing firsthand. We are going together. Me, Luke, and Paul and Silas are going on to the city of Philippi, to the region of Macedonia. And the first person they meet when they go into Philippi is a woman, a very successful businesswoman named Lydia. And let me tell you a little bit about her, what we know about her from the scriptures. She was really successful in this unique trade of, of purple cloth, of goods of purple. And this was a rare kind of fabric, a rare quality. It's actually a trade that was even controlled by the Roman Empire. It was highly prized. It was a highly expensive fabric. It was a very lucrative trade. And we maybe not think about fabric as being a costly trade, but even today, right? My, my wife, Rachel, shortly after we were married, she worked in the wedding dress industry and, and talked about how just the type of fabric that a dress was made out of could double or triple the price if it was a, a silk chiffon or a different kind of fabric could make the dress incredibly more expensive, right? So even today, the trade of fabric is a, is a profitable industry, and Lydia had been very effective in her work. She had built up a substantial household. The text makes it clear that she has a, a large home. She has a lot of employees, servants, um, just large household. She's uh, got a, a large income. But not only was Lydia successful in this competitive world of, of fashion, fabric, merchandising, um, she was also a really good person by all accounts. She wasn't just this competitive cutthroat businesswoman. She was also a, a philanthropist. She, was, she longed to, uh, to know God, to be a good person. Because the place that Paul finds her is outside of the city wall at a place called a, a place of prayer. And, and Philippi was a, a Roman colony, um, and it probably had a, a pretty small Jewish population. Because the fact that Paul goes to this place of prayer outside the city wall on the Sabbath day may suggest that there wasn't even a, a synagogue, a Jewish place of worship there. Again, this was a Roman imperial-dominated city. Primarily, uh, there was Romans there, not many Jews. And in the midst of that city, in the midst of her successful life, though, Lydia is longing for something, seeking something more. The text calls her a fear of God, which probably means, again, she wasn't Jewish, but she was seeking out the one true God of Israel. She was longing for something more. Even in the midst of the busyness, the pressure of her career and her life, she sensed there had to be something more. And this is where Paul finds her. Listen to verses 13 through 15. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the, woman who, to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. 
So just like that, she believes the message of Jesus. She becomes a Christian, her whole household, and she extends this hospitality. In fact, her home is going to become the center, likely, of the church in Philippi. So what does Jesus do? What do we, what do we learn about Jesus' rescue through Lydia's story? Well, what we see here is that Jesus makes successful people into living people. Jesus takes successful people and makes them alive. You know, there are so many people in our city, in our neighborhood, who are just like Lydia. And maybe you're one of them. Maybe you really resonate with our story. You've done it all right. You worked hard in school, you got the right internship, uh, you, you made the connections that you needed to in college through the, your fraternity or sorority to get the right job, maybe you started your own company, you, you're an entrepreneur, maybe you went on to add a professional degree, an MBA, an MD, a JD, PE, you've worked hard and you're advancing in your organization, you're advancing in, in your industry, uh, you're, you're raising money for charity, you're involved in philanthropic efforts in our city. You, you run the 5Ks for your friends supporting cancer research. But somehow you, you can't escape the fact that it, it just feels like it isn't enough. You still feel a loneliness and emptiness. And, and it's frustrating because it, it just doesn't make sense because your culture has told you that success equals life. And so why is it that, you, that you've been so successful and yet feel so dead inside? Maybe it's because you are. The great Welsh preacher of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, once used an illustration that's always grabbed me. He talks about the difference between an artificial plant and a, and a real, living, growing plant. And to put my spin on that illustration this morning, artificial plants often look much more successful than real plants. Right? If you've ever tried to take care of them, you know, they do, right? An artificial plant, it's always green. Its leaves are always that deep color. There's never any brown spots. They're never wilty. They never have any bugs. On the outside, they look really successful. But on the inside, they're hollow. They're plastic. They aren't alive. No matter how good they look, they are not alive. See, Jesus came to rescue us from the lie that success equals life. He came to replace the artificial plants of success with living, struggling, beautiful life in the gospel. A life that is often more difficult, always more costly, but it is real and full and deep and alive. You see, this is just the beginning, because next Luke introduces us to someone who's, who's very different than Lydia, but still lives there in Philippi, an exploited child. 
And Luke introduces us to her by calling her. She tells us that she's a slave girl who has a spirit, uh, kind of like a, a demonic spirit that enables her to tell the future. She's sort of like a medium kind of a figure. She can kind of communicate with the spiritual realm. And because she has this ability, she's been enslaved and exploited by people more powerful than her who are selling her abilities to others. So they keep her captive enslaved, and then people pay to to come and ask her questions to consult with her. And this was actually a a pretty common sort of practice in the Greco-Roman world, um, because in this time period, people believed that their their lives were controlled by the whims and inclinations of like a vast majority or a vast uh, kind of range of fickle, changeable, unpredictable deities, right? So there was deities for your city and and deities for your your trade or your industry, and you had to keep all these gods happy. And they they were they were basically just like human beings, only bigger in the sense that they they still they had moods and whims, and you could never quite tell if the gods were happy with you or if they were going to be in a bad mood that day. And so their lives were dominated by feasts and festivals and rituals to gain favor with them. And this often included consulting with these kind of spiritual intermediaries, the oracles, these mediums, to try to figure out what the gods were doing. Are the gods happy with me? Am I I doomed? Am I not? And archaeologists have actually even uncovered uh, these, they call them oracle books, but these, these documents, these parchments, that even included records of the kinds of questions that people brought to these oracles, these mediums. And so, um, you know, and I was like really curious. I'm like, I wonder what kind of questions people were asking. And they're incredibly mundane questions. They weren't like, when is the world going to end? There were questions like this. These are actual questions from this ancient document. Will I receive my wages? (laughs) Am I going to get paid? Uh, Will I get a holiday? Am I going to get a day off? Do I get a vacation? Um, Will I be successful? Uh, should I run away? Um, if I run away, will I get caught? Um, have I been poisoned? These are all actual questions that the people brought. And, and, you know, we chuckle, but I think part of the reason we chuckle is because, like, we can kind of relate to these sort of questions, right? Uh, they're the same kind of questions that we put to horoscopes and magic eight balls and psychic hotlines today, right? My, am I going to be successful? Have I been poisoned? Maybe, maybe not that one. Um, But it's not like we're somehow so much more advanced than people 2,000 years ago in Philippi. It looks different today, but we still have these same kinds of questions. And lots of people in our culture today are still seeking answers through these kind of spiritual forces. But this girl, on top of being oppressed by this, this kind of demonic spirit, this medium spirit, She's also enslaved by these people. So she's sort of doubly enslaved, doubly impressed, once in the the spiritual realm, but also she's being held captive by these people who are exploiting her. But everything is about to change for this girl because Jesus is going to invade her life and set her free. And this story happens, it unfolds in a very different way than Lydia's because Paul and Silas, they go out to where Lydia is and they uh, we don't even know what Paul says, but it's like Lydia just hears what Paul says. God opens her heart. She becomes a Christian. Her whole house gets baptized. This encounter is really different. Paul and Silas, they're not seeking this girl out. They're just going through the city. They're going about their business, and she starts following them. And the whole time she's following them around in the marketplace, she's shouting. 
And this is what she's shouting. She's saying, these men who proclaim to you the way of salvation are servants of the Most High God. She just keeps yelling at them. And Luke tells us that this goes on for many days. So for many days, every time they're out and about in the city, this girl finds them and is walking around with them shouting, these men are prophets of the Most High God. And what's interesting, what she's yelling, though, is that at one level you could say, oh, this, this seems like a confirmation of their message. She somehow has this insight through the Spirit into who they are and, and the message of Jesus, and that's, that's possible. But uh, a lot of scholars point out that, in, again, this is the Roman colony of Philippi. There aren't many, there isn't much Jewish uh, rootedness here. This language of the Most High God, even though we associate that with the God of Israel, was also used to describe sort of the highest God and a pantheon of gods in the Greco-Roman context. So it's almost as though you could understand her as be saying, these are the prophets of Zeus, the most high God, Zeus, the, the, the leader of the pantheon. And the language of salvation, we, again, we just instantly sort of associate that with, with Jesus' rescue, but that was a pretty generic word just to talk about health or well-being. And so it's almost like there's this ambiguity of she's shouting out, these are the prophets of the Most High, and are people saying, oh, this is Zeus offering health and salvation and, 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 and uh, prosperity. And so finally, Paul, he's had enough of this. Text says he's greatly annoyed, this person following around yelling all the time. And so he turns to her, and he speaks to the Spirit, and he, he says, in the name of Jesus, leave her. And what's so fascinating about this is instantly the Spirit comes out of her. And again, so whatever ambiguity there had been about who was the Most High God in Philippi instantly disappears. Because it's clear that Jesus, the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, He is the Most High God who is over all other powers and all other other gods, and they have to obey instantly. Now, I wondered this week as I was studying this passage, why is it that Paul let this go on for many days? We don't know how, how long, but he says many days. I mean, why didn't he just, on the first day she was there, I mean, it, it didn't take a lot of work. He just said, leave her in the name of Jesus. And he was going, why didn't he just do that the first day? Why does he let this go on for so long? Not only because it's annoying, but also because there's this girl who's being oppressed by the Spirit. Why doesn't he act? And I think, I think that he waited because of what happens next. I think that Paul had a suspicion about what was going to happen when he did this. Look at verse 19. But when her owners saw that all their hope of gain was gone, the Spirit's gone. They can't make money from her anymore. When they saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and are disturbing the city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in, attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. You see, I think that Paul understood that the moment he threatened the economic vitality of the slave owners, 
that his time in Philippi was going to be limited. So I think he waits because he wants to accomplish this work because he knows that after he does this confrontation that their time is going to be limited. But after many days, the time has come and he casts out the Spirit in Jesus' name and they face the high cost of setting her free. The cost of setting this girl free was the cost of their own bodies being beaten and imprisoned. Her freedom cost them their freedom. So what is it that Jesus does? What does Jesus do? What do we learn about Jesus' rescue through the story of this exploited child? We see that Jesus liberates the enslaved. In Luke's first volume, you see Acts is volume two of a two-volume work. The first volume is the Gospel of Luke, and then Luke writes the rest of the story in Acts. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus begins his ministry, he goes into a synagogue, he picks up a scroll from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, and Jesus reads these words, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus says these words are being fulfilled in me. He's saying today in your hearing, this is my mission. And what do we find how Jesus works out this mission? Later on in Luke chapter 4, Right after this moment, we see Jesus casting a demon out of someone, just like Paul does in Acts. Again, Luke is showing us this connection between what Jesus has begun to do and teach in the book of Luke and what he's continuing to do and teach through his body, the church, in Acts. And he doesn't just um, liberate people in a spiritual sense. The message, the, the message of Jesus is good news for the poor. It's good news for the oppressed. Again, not just in a spiritual sense, but in every dimension of life, including the economic realities of life. And, and no one puts this better than the theology of work commentary. Listen to this. Paul and Silas were not on a mission to reform the corrupt economic and political practices of the Roman world. But the power of Jesus to liberate people from sin and death cannot help but break the bonds of exploitation. There can be no spiritual liberation without economic consequences. Paul and Silas were willing to expose themselves to ridicule, beating, and prison in order to bring economic liberation to someone whose sex, economic status, and age made her vulnerable to abuse. See, Jesus liberates the enslaved. He did it on earth during his ministry, um, before his death and resurrection, and he continues to do it today through the church, which is why the church must be at the forefront in proclaiming the good news and working out the implications of that good news for those who are vulnerable because of their, their gender, their sex, their economic status, their race, their ethnicity, etc., and some of you here this morning are vulnerable in those ways, you've, and you've felt those vulnerabilities, and maybe you've, you've been abused or oppressed in your past because of that. And I want to know, let you know, as your pastors, as your church family, we're here for you in that. We want to help you in that. Jesus is here for you. 
we, Christ community, I hope we would continue to be a church family that proclaims release to the captive, setting free the impressed, addressing issues like human trafficking, uh, mass incarceration, not, not because those things in and of themselves are our mission, but because they are the inevitable implications of our mission. There can be you no know, spiritual liberation without whole life consequences. If you're not familiar with organizations like the International Justice Mission or Prison Fellowship and the work that they're doing around mass incarceration, I encourage you this week, spend a little time in Google and, and look up uh, International Justice Mission, look up Prison Fellowship. They're doing incredible work to address human trafficking and modern day slavery and mass incarceration from a deeply biblical and gospel-rooted place. And it's actually into a prison cell that Luke takes us next. Because after those slave owners realized the power that they had, that this girl had to make the money was gone, they beat Paul and Silas up, they're thrown into prison. And this is where we get our next portrait. We're introduced to the corrections officer. There they are, Paul and Silas, bruised and bleeding, you can imagine every, every move causes them searing pain. But what are they doing? Are they complaining? Are they lamenting? Are they angry with God? Are they despairing? No. Just, just listen to what happens next. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And then suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken and immediately all the doors were open. Everyone's chains came loose. And when the jailer awoke and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. This blue-collar, average guy, this corrections officer, he thinks my life is over. And we know from Roman documents at this time that, that, the, that a guard, a, a soldier who was responsible for prisoners, if those prisoners escaped, that his punishment was whatever those prisoners were going to be punished with. And so rather than face the humiliation, the shame, the beating, the possible execution that, that is coming for him, if these prisoners escape, this, this guy is just going to take his own life. But just as he is about to fall on his sword... He hears something. Verse 28. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, because we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell down before Paul and Silas. And he escorted them out. And he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? When this corrections officer, when he, when he realizes that they're all still there, he actually has a, almost a greater moment of fear because initially he's just scared, scared that these prisoners have escaped. But now he, he falls down trembling before Paul and Silas and asks, what must I do to be saved? And the reason I think that he's so terrified is I don't think, he, maybe he overheard something of the singing and the praying, but more likely in the ancient world they viewed earthquakes as the signs of, of divine judgment. This guy thinks, oh, I've, I've locked up somebody that Zeus likes, and now Zeus is angry at me. 
The gods are angry at me. I've got bigger problems than just maybe prisoners having escaped. I've angered the gods. What must I do to be saved from the gods? Now he's really terrified. And once again, just like with Lydia, just like with this exploited child, Paul and Silas point to the one true God who is over every other. And they answer in this way, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And right away, all of his family were baptized. We have like a middle of the night baptism service here. And he brought them into his house and set a meal before them and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. What does Jesus do? Jesus gives hope in despair. He finds out that he, this guy finds out he failed at his job and he wants to kill himself. But Jesus meets us in those darkest moments of despair. For this man, the, the honor associated with fulfilling his job and his responsibilities, those were absolute in his life. He had made those so central that when he fails at his work, he wants to end his life. But contrast that with Paul and Silas, who their lives seem to be falling apart too. They've been beaten up, thrown in prison, and they're singing praise. Jesus meets us in our moments of despair. And maybe you're here this morning and maybe you feel like your life is falling apart. The thing that you've built your life around, maybe it is your career, or maybe it's your family or your kids or, or, or your marriage, or maybe you've longed to get married and, and it just hasn't happened and, and you're, you're just struggling in the pain of loneliness or the pain of divorce. And it feels like everything is crumbling underneath you and you're in despair. Jesus meets you in that despair. Jesus gives you hope in that despair. Why? Well, because the jailer gets it right. In the sense that we are, it is true, all of us are under divine judgment. But Jesus has given his life for ours. He has let us escape and then took the punishment that we had been condemned with. Like Paul and Silas, he gave up his freedom and safety so that we could be set free. And he takes all of us and he puts us into this new church body, this new church community, this new family where we come together. You see, those people, this businesswoman, this slave girl, this corrections officer, there's no place in the life of the Roman city of Philippi where they would have all come together except for in the local church. The local church is the only place where these three very different people would have come together. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus is doing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we uh, would become the kind of congregation that recognizes how you are at work in our midst, that we would proclaim the good news to the poor, to all who are oppressed, that we would celebrate the goodness of the freedom that we have in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.